Well, yesterday was an interesting day, wasn't it? Whatever your perspective on royalty, um, it was an interesting day. And it had within it incredible layers of truth that were being broadcast around the world. And the, the presiding element for me was this chorister of 14 years of age, I think he was, who stood before the king at the very beginning and basically said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and you're just like, wow. And then said, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings. And the whole ceremony, the whole thing was established upon the hierarchy of heaven over any earthly rule. And it was just astounding. And, and as I watched and as I, I tried to comprehend all the, you know, the scepters and the orb and the sword and the spurs and the, and the bracelets and then the crown and the gold robe. I mean, wow, what a robe that he was placed in. And the ermine, the, the white and the black. and the, I mean, you just think, wowzers. And Jesus had none of that. His glory was a different glory. His glory was from another realm. You know, when he's in front of Pilate and that, and they're like, you know, the only authority you have is the authority that's given to you, for my kingdom is not of this world, but is of another, and that other is superior to this one. It's a completely superior realm. And while we see in Revelation, I was just stuck during worship in Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw a heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one else knew except himself. I mean, wowzers. I mean, no one else knew his name except himself because his name carries the essence of who he is. And it's so profound, it's so incredible, no one can know it nor proclaim it because it contains the power and authority of who he is. And you just think, my word. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you just, you just get a glimpse, a glimmer of his glory. And everything yesterday was like, here you are, Charles III, here's a sword, and we command you, almost, to take it and rule in justice and mercy. Because we know there's a proclivity in humanity not to do so. We ask you to rule in justice and truth and righteousness because we know that your heart's fragile and there's a possibility you won't. And as I was watching, I went back to like Henry V and others who literally would have taken up the sword and fought on behalf of what they believed was righteousness and truth and justice and mercy. So literally the, 
the authority in that weapon was literal and realized. Now it's a metaphor. Now it's an image. But it was real then. But our Jesus is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And who does he make war on? It's not on humanity. Because he came to seek and save the lost. He came to recover that which was lost. No, he he fights against the demonic realm. He fights against darkness. He fights against oppression. And we, his people, have been set free. And so we find ourselves under the rule and reign of another king. A king who steps into our misery and says, will you let go of it and will you hold on to me? And in that place we find the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His justice, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, his authority and his power and his rule. What's that got to do with hospitality? I have no idea. I just, I was just, he just caught me. He just caught me this morning and I'm like, that, he is so very good. And sometimes you just have to put other stuff aside and talk about him because he's so glorious. And it is who he is. And so we get to see these glimpses both through the word of God, but also in our spirits during worship. We get lifted up. I mean, the choruses yesterday in Westminster Cathedral was just astounding. I'd love to go into that house. Do you remember that gospel choir? Oh, that was powerful, wasn't it? Man, I'd love to be in that house singing our praises this morning. I just, yeah, that was built for the glory of God, for the acoustic resonance of that building to pick up the voices and glorify him who is way above all. And you just think, yeah, man. And every song yesterday was about the glory of God and his own son. He's good. He steps into our humanity to restore us and recover us from what was lost to what should be from what we walked away from to walk back into. There is, if I may attempt, a connection here between the very nature of God and our own hearts of hospitality. There is this glory-filled recognition of the difference of who he is, and yet he steps into our brokenness and our tragedy, and he recovers us. And he calls us to practice his ways and do the same thing. This is the first of a series of three weeks where we're going to look at the subject of hospitality. And just explore some of the ways of Jesus and what is he like. Because we've started the year with with, uh, community, we've then looked at scripture and now we're looking at this subject of hospitality. And it's radically ordinary. It's radically ordinary. And as we explore his ways, we get to see that actually by walking with people in the everyday, by doing everyday things, we become powerful conveyors of the gospel, of a different culture, of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world. And we get to build up and strengthen through radically ordinary means people around us to provoke the question 
Why do you have hope? What is it about you? Why do you have this in you? What's going on? Hosper, the Latin original root of the word hospitality, means to receive as a guest. And of course, for us, we know that develops into the word hospital and hospitality, the hospitality industry of restaurants and hotels and all the rest. But the root is that of receiving a guest, receiving a stranger into your most sacred space, your home and your heart. This is what God has done for us. He receives us. Once who are far off, who are estranged from him, strangers, he's now brought near through his son. God is hospitable. He seeks to dwell amongst us, his people. He wants an ever-increasing number of people within whom to dwell. And he wants that to increase upon increase. And we've been talking about that. John's been talking about that this morning. There are three things that I'd like to look at briefly today. The first one is Jesus' model of love in action, of hospitality. The second is the question, who's in and who's out? And the third is, okay, what do I need? What do I do with this? Love in action. It's simple. It's radically simple. You know it. It's Jesus washing our feet. John 13, 3, John records this. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So, he got up from the table took off his robe and wrapped a towel around his waist. Those two sentences are so juxtaposed to each other. He knew the Father had given him authority over everything. Just chew on that for a minute. He'd given him authority over everything. And he absolutely knew he'd come from God, eternally God, always has been God, always will be God. He knows who he is. And that he would return to God. So what does he do? He sits down with his courtiers and they work out a complex plan of the grandest ceremony you've ever seen on planet Earth to recognize his authority that is absolute. They go to the goldsmiths and they carve and they cut wood and they cover it with gold. They make chariots and carriages. They have armies in grand regalia. They have trumpeters and choruses. They gather as many people together in the most beautiful place and Jesus gathers them all and says, right now praise and glorify me. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and begins to wash the disciples' dirty feet. It just 
leaves us speechless. It's so hard to comprehend that this glorious one that we see, the rider on the white horse in heaven, the one that is referenced throughout Scripture, the fourth man walking in the fire, the one that Daniel perceives as the son of man, a great phrase that Jesus uses of himself time and again. What we see here in Revelation, the transfiguration of Jesus with a few of the disciples at the top of a mountain. These are glimpses and glimmers. But what does this God do? He takes the lowest position. It's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi about. And he says, this is your highest ideal, Philippians 2, that being very God, he chooses not to compete with God, but lowers himself to that of a slave, of a servant, and even to such extent that he's willing to go to the ultimate humiliation of a cross, public, shaming, humiliation, physical pain, emotional torture and he goes there for us why so that we can be included so a way is made that man might dwell with God again it's just astounding he blows our minds again and again but it is this this first part of John 13 3 that Jesus knows who he is that sets for us our opportunity of understanding of how we go into the world with a heart of hospitality. It's been said that without God, it's wise to maintain walls around your heart, to keep yourself safe from the threat of others. But with Jesus in your centre, the walls can come down. The drawbridge opened, the stronghold emptied of its fortifications and its defences. And the human heart now becomes a place of recovery for the broken and those in need, rather than a place that's defended and secured against the world. As we walk into the kingdom of God, we find our armour is removed and replaced. Our strongholds can come down, our walls can be removed. Why? Because we find ourselves secure in his love. We find ourselves that whatever we do, whatever we expend of ourselves, is always met by an overflow of his grace, his love, his kindness, his favour. And so therefore we are freely able to give as we have freely received. It is this position of our hearts that God wants to speak into us about. A heart position that is so secure in knowing who he is that we're able to take the lowest place for anybody we meet and create for them a safe harbour. Create for them a safe environment within which they can be loved. And then they can explore. Who is this Jesus that so transformed you that I can find a home 
where I thought there'd never be one. So the question, who's in and who's out? It's an easy question to answer in the mind. I can very quickly go, yeah, everyone's in. But the heart speaks a different message. I mean, I might see some youths smashing a car window on a road. Or I might read in the news about what somebody's just done and been convicted of. I start to draw lines and boundaries around the possibility of who can enter into this space and who can't. Who am I willing to expose this to and who am I not willing to expose it to? And so I have to come back to Jesus and I have to ask the question. Now Jesus is radical in his ordinariness. When we read the Gospels, we read through them and we just see that he seems to be doing life with people. He's walking with them, he's talking, he's eating. We read through Luke, it's almost like he's going from one meal to the next. It's like no wonder people said, look, he's a, he's a glutton and a bibbard. Oh, I don't know if that means, a drinker. Because he's constantly going from one feast to another, to another, to another. And here in Luke 19, we find another scenario. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man named there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus! He said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, if we've been in church for a while, we start to understand some of the history and the context here. But the journey that Jesus is making is one of real shock to the culture and society of the day. I was reading some material on this and, and one of the writers I likened it to back in the 1950s, I think it was, when Korea was occupied by Japan. I may have got the dates wrong, but Korea was occupied by Japan. And this lovely Korean lady was invited to speak in the West about education in Korea. And she'd been given half an hour to speak on the subject. And when she stood up, she said, I thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today about education in Korea, but I can't while the Japanese continue to occupy our land. And then she spent the remaining half an hour speaking about the reality of living under Japanese rule in Korea. It was the words in the culture, like the words through a stick of rock, was occupation. Everything about us culturally, all our aspirations, our hope, our faith was caught up in the reality of Rome occupying Israel. And the tax collectors were the lowest of the low because they were Jews who'd given themselves over to work for the enemy. 
to take your hard earnings that you work hard for and take 50% of those and then add another 10 or 20% for their own pocket. I just take that moment. Those of you that are employed and receive a salary, just imagine giving half of that away to somebody and then knowing that they're going to take another 20% for their own pocket and the fact they live in some huge house up there and they're living it up and you're struggling every day. But they're protected by the authorities and those authorities don't care about you whatsoever. That's the context of Jesus interacting with Zacchaeus. But it's a bit more than that as well. Because the cultural framework was, if you're a rabbi, if you're a teacher, and Jesus was recognized as that, you do not hang out with people that shouldn't go into the middle of the temple courts, into the holy place of God. You don't hang out with them. And if we go back to this period in history that Isaiah prophesies about, about the nation of Israel, Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesy about Israel being taken from their land and put in Babylon, right? And there's this period of history where the Jews end up in Babylon and they've got no temple. They've got nowhere to worship. They've got nothing. And so what happens is, is that the, the priests have to work out what are we going to do because we don't want all of our religious practice to stop. So they say, right, okay, the temple is going to become the home. It's the house that you're dwelling in in Babylon. That's now the temple. The table that you eat at, that's now the altar. That's going to be the place that you're going to sit around, that you're going to gather about, that's the altar. The father in the household is going to be the priest and the food is going to be the sacrifice. And we're going to take what would be in the 